Thanks for tuning in to Christian Medical and Dental Association's chapel. May the message be a blessing to you. Thank you uh, for the invitation to be here. The invitation came to me initially. Um, sorry, there we go. Through Bill Reichert, who sent a message out to all of the field staff inviting us to participate. And um, the enticement was that we'd get a chance to speak to CMDA, which I would like to do. I've been a CMDA member since my uh, first year of medical school in 1986. Um, he also mentioned the, the fact that this is one way that there can be a connection between the field and through the, the central offices in Bristol. And so um, I signed up and um, I had a conflict or two, but we've we worked it out and I'm grateful for this time to talk to you. I, um, I do two things. Uh, so yeah, I have three. Bob is my fiscal director for CDA effort for more than 20 years doing that. So I spend a lot of time actually with weekly meetings on campus and meeting with residents. And we've got other things going on for graduates. Today, for instance, we'll have um, our first annual crawfish boil. The weather should be good. <clears throat> I spend uh, spend other time in clinical medicine. I do uh, I work in a community emergency department. I do that about six days a month. And then with some other fellow disciples, we started a company that works with the Memphis Fire Department. And we go to 911 calls that appear to be when they come in to be of lower acuity. We've got a real crisis in Memphis, especially with COVID regarding ambulance availability and overuse of the 911 system and ERs. And so we ride with Memphis paramedics and Memphis vehicles and we go to 911 calls and we try to address issues either in the home or getting people to a site that's a better option than going to an emergency department. So I say that because now and for the last uh, almost 30 years now, I've been working in Memphis in a very uh, frankly low income community. And let's see if I can figure out, there we go. That's our city. Um, this is a map that I often show people that's done by a demographer named Eric Fisher and Eric Fisher is concerned primarily about race. And so this is Memphis, Tennessee. Every dot in this map is represents 25 people. So blue dots are black people in our city, red dots are white folks. There's a smattering of yellow, which represent Latino people. And I think the obvious thing about this map of Memphis and frankly, every major city in the United States is the separation that we have by races. And um, there are some areas where white people and black people live together, but it's pretty rare. The resources for our city are actually adequate. What I mean by that is in the medical and dental realms and healthcare realms, we have enough healthcare providers for the city, but they are very much disproportionately uh, situated in the areas where you see red. So we've said for many years, and I apologize to those of you who've heard me speak before, because I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but in areas where you see red, Doctors and dentists are competing with doctors and dentists to get patients. But in the areas where you see blue, patients are unfortunately competing with patients to, to get doctors. 
This is true, uh, not just in Memphis, but everywhere. Memphis does have some particular issues. Uh, this is the city where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Uh, so that's uh, just the central event, unfortunately, culturally for our city. It's a continuing point of division. Unfortunately, it's still a, a matter of differences between Christian people, white and black in our city. And unfortunately, largely that's because the evangelical church at that time, for different reasons, complicated reasons, were not supportive of Dr. King and uh, his approach, his nonviolent approach to civil rights advancement. And so some of our most prominent churches <clears throat> opted out. Again, that was a really complicated historical time. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's been problematic. And as I mentioned, Dr. King was assassinated here that night in Memphis and across the country. There were riots related to that. Uh, the, the division that happened is uh, oversimplified by this picture, but there was a concern in the late 20th century. I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1964. Um, Within the church, there was this concern that, that we should be proclaiming the gospel and calling people to faith and to repentance and to eternal life. And what mattered uh, the most was eternal souls. And for that reason, caring for the needy and the poor. And, and again, I, I think I made this point, but I want you to hear it again. In my city and in every, every American city, the poor are overwhelmingly low-income people who are African-American or Latino, that poverty and race have a big, big overlap in our country. So um, this, this tension that was present in the 20th century that's continued to, our, to the present time now between the need to meet needs of the poor, which we know to be a biblical reality, to be a, a message, I'm going to try to make that point here in the remaining time I have with you, balancing in this tension of proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repentance and to biblical truth, and then meaningfully, lovingly caring for the least of these among us who are, again, largely in our country, racial minorities. And unfortunately, in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was concern among evangelical churches that the leading voices who were calling for the care for the poor and issues of justice were not reliably uh, orthodox, meaning their Christian faith was suspect. And people pointed out that Dr. Martin Luther King, for instance, attended a quote-unquote liberal seminary. Of course, there's not always acknowledgement that Dr. King could not have been admitted to most of our orthodox seminaries at that time. And so a fear of communism and uh, all the things attached to that played into this, what's become an uh, unnatural division of proclaiming biblical truth and calling people to biblical faith and meaningfully, lovingly serving the poor, that there, there grew and continues to this day, unfortunately, sort of a suspicion among those who are seemingly most passionate about social justice issues and serving the poor, sort of a suspicion of, of those of us who are committed to biblical truth and to orthodoxy, um, that we don't really care about the poor and we care more about ourselves and, and vice versa. There's a suspicion among people who are orthodox that those who are concerned about, most loudly concerned about caring for the poor aren't committed to biblical truth. 
So what I'm hoping in my chance to talk to CMDA is to remind myself and you that that doesn't have to be, that's a, that's, that's a fallacy. That's called a fallacy of the excluded middle. I learned that from John Patrick, that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be that either we care about proclaiming biblical truth and calling people to repentance and faith, or we serve their needs that we should and must do both. So to make that point, I want to take you quickly through some biblical truths, because I love the Bible. I know that CMDA loves the Bible and um, the law and the prophets. Another way to say that is Moses and the prophets are full of God's concern for the poor. And if we had time, I would walk you through all of these passages. These are all from the Torah, from the first five books of the Old Testament, when, as you know, God led his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the strong hand of his his power over the Egyptian gods and over Pharaoh, led his people through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land and gave them a law along the way. And so in the only time that we had uh, a, a political organization that was literally headed by the Lord without a king, there were ample laws uh, that designated how the community was supposed to care for the poor. So, you know, these laws, um, some of you are familiar with them just from reading the New Testament and the Old Testament. For instance, this morning, part of my quiet time was in the book of Ruth. And so I read how Ruth went behind the, the harvesters of Boaz and she collected the gleanings. So that's the first passage that when people, all people who had property, and of course, you know, every Israelite family received property. It was the means of economic survival and flourishing, that when you harvest your grapes, when you harvest your wheat and all those things, you're supposed to leave the edges of your field, not don't go over a second time and get everything leave for the poor, primarily widows, orphans, and, and aliens. That the second passage in Leviticus meant that any member of the community who needed capital for whatever reason was afforded loans without interest that in the third passage in Deuteronomy, if those if those loans were still outstanding at seven years, no matter what, they were forgiven. All loans were forgiven every seven years. That if it came to the point that uh, a member of the community had to become an indentured servant, that that could only last for seven years in Deuteronomy 15. And that servants, when they were released from servitude, had to be given sort of a new start, the the quote unquote masters or the, the the people who benefited from their service had to provide for them as they left from their threshing floor and from their flocks, et cetera, to make sure they could get a good start. I read, as I mentioned in Ruth this morning, that Naomi was going to have to sell her land temporarily to a kinsman redeemer. But I think you know that the most amazing thing is that every seventh seven-year period or the 50th year even property that had been sold was returned to the original family. So that was the, the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee, that in, in those last two passages in Exodus, everyone had equal rights in the courts and, and all of the most vulnerable people were protected by God's law. I want you to consider briefly, again, we have so little time this morning, but what would happen in a society, and we don't know, honestly, whether the um, Israelites ever fully followed these laws, but what would happen if there was a society where 
you always needed it without interest, that you would not be ground down by long-lasting debts and poverty. If you had debts, they would be forgiven every seven years, that even if you were in servitude, you had to be released with a fresh start, and that no matter what, you could always get your family's uh, property back, your, your birthright back eventually in the 50th year. Similarly, so the question there is, would we ever have grinding multi-generational poverty if those facts were, were real? I think the answer is likely no. And the flip of that is, would we have exceedingly wealthy people? And I'm not advocating this system assumes private property. It's God's property. It's, God's very clear. It's his, but he's given it to the people. This assumes that people can work harder and prosper. This isn't socialism or communism, but in the system that God set up for his people, understanding that we're not under the law now, would it be possible for really rich people to get really rich if they had to offer capital and loans without interest, if they had to forgive debts, if they had to release servants, and if they had to return property they'd acquired with regularity? Like, Would there ever be really, really rich people generation after generation and really, really poor people? So, I know it's a hot word, it's a difficult word, but uh, there would be more justice, there would be more protection of the needy, and there would be um, the ability for everyone to thrive and to prosper in that system. Uh, again, if we had time, we could look at the wisdom literature and seek God's commitment to the poor, the strong admonitions for people to look out, especially for the most vulnerable people. Um, and there are big passages in both major and minor prophets in the Old Testament also um, castigating Israel for their lack of concern for the poor. Uh, important passages, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61, passages in Amos and Micah that, uh, that really accentuate this point. So quickly, um, this is not just an Old Testament notion. And again, I'm not advocating that we return to living under the Old Testament law. I rejoice uh, as a Gentile that the, all of the promises of God are open to me, a non-Jew, and that I don't have to uh, follow the law to be pleasing God's sight, that our hope is in Jesus and his righteousness. But this, these themes are also New Testament themes. And so I a few years ago, picked the Gospel of Luke, which everyone understands is the best gospel because it was written by a doctor. <laughs> and I went through the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter by chapter, and I looked for these themes that I just sort of walk through the Old Testament with you. And I found uh, two themes, and I, I use this picture, which is sort of creepy, to remind me that there are two themes that come up in 16 out of the 24 chapters of Luke. So, in the in the term of biblical proportion, like these are these are passages uh, and points that are made repeatedly and with depth. And uh, the principle is that things that are repeated and explained in the Bible with depth are of importance. And so here's the two themes that I came up with, and I'm going to quickly get you through, and then we'll be finished. The first is the danger of wealth. Uh, the danger of wealth. I think, especially as Americans, especially in the circles that we run, when I say we professionals, uh, the membership of CMDA are, are typically people who are have big earners, like the, 
we've found ways to sort of soften the New Testament, the Bible's warnings to us, Jesus' warnings to us about the potential dangers of wealth. But that comes up multiple, multiple times in the Gospel of Luke. And then secondly, the necessity of us caring for the poor, the necessity of it, the, the, I'm going to even use the word centrality of it. So let's go on a quick whirlwind tour of the Gospel of Luke, uh, starting with chapter one. This is from the Magnificat, the beautiful Holy Spirit-inspired um, prayer of Mary. And I can't read it all because of my screen, but from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Chapter two says, there were purification rites for women following the delivery of a baby that included a trip to the temple. And it was connected to the, especially to the firstborn. So Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, when the time came for the purification rites, uh, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to make sacrifice in keeping with what's said in the law of the, of the Lord, a sacrifice of doves or two young pigeons, except that that really was not uh, the prescribed sacrifice. The prescribed sacrifice was, uh, according to the book of Leviticus, a lamb. But there's a provision for poor people in the book of Leviticus, which Mary and Joseph had to avail themselves of. If she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. This way, the priest will make atonement for her. So I bring this up, in, and I think the author of the gospel and the Holy Spirit brings it up to show us that when God became flesh, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he did it as a poor child. He did it in a poor family. He identified with the poor. He was, in fact, early in his life, a refugee and fled, as you know, to Egypt and had to live in that, those circumstances like God when he became human, didn't wasn't born into a middle-class family or an upper-class family. He was born into a family of poor people who had to avail themselves of commandments. Three, we're not going to go every chapter, I promise you. This is the, I think, greatest and the last of the prophets. Prophets are unpleasant people. Prophets tell people things they don't want to hear. It's usually a message from God to God's people. And so John the Baptist, the, the last prophet, in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, told the audience as precursor of Jesus, told his audience, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be thrown into the fire. So again, not a very pleasant message, a call to repentance. That's what prophets want. They want people to repent. And usually they don't. But in this case, John got a good response, at least from some people. What should we do then? The crowd asked John the Baptist. And I wonder if you quickly in your mind can remember his answer to that question. There's fruit in, in keeping with repentance. Don't take confidence in your religious status, whoever you think you are but show us acts of repentance to prove your 
your religious faith. Okay, they ask him, what's, what do we do? And if you recall, this is what he said. Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. This is the fruit of actual repentance and obedience and authentic faith from John the Baptist. Luke 4 is the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he goes into his hometown synagogue, Nazareth, where he'd been brought up on the Sabbath day, went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. You remember at the end of his reading, as he says, I tell you that this day, this, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your presence. But I wonder if you remember what Jesus Christ chose as his first um, sermon text. It's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery site for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I hope that last line rings in your mind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is a, a reference to the, to the year of Jubilee. I think sometimes we spiritualize things. Uh, what I mean by that is maybe Jesus didn't mean the poor. He meant the poor in spirit, or maybe he didn't mean prisoners in jails. Maybe he meant people under spiritual oppression. And I think, honestly, he probably did mean that, but he also meant poor people and prisoners. Uh, this point is made in Luke's handling of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew's version, Matthew 5 through 7, is much more famous, but Luke has a Sermon on the Mount. And of course, we understand Jesus preached for three years and he, he had different themes and he said things in different ways. So it's not, it's not uh, inconsistent for the two of us to have different. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say what Matthew said. Matthew said poor in spirit. Luke says poor. Bless you who are hungry, who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. Unlike Matthew, who talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Luke says, blessed are the hungry. Bless you who weep now, for you will laugh. And con in, in addition to what Matthew has, which are beatitudes or blessings, Luke also has, has woes or curses attached to his. And he says this very clearly. Woe to you who are rich, for you already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Or do you laugh now for your mo you will mourn? Luke 10, you see how fast we're going through this? Uh, on one occasion, the expert of law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, you tell me. Tell me what the law says. And this, this inquisitor said, you shall, he quoted the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, You've answered correctly. Uh, do this and you will inherit eternal life. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? And what follows is perhaps the most famous story that Jesus told um, about the Good Samaritan, which has many facets to it, but is most clearly the case of cross-racial, meaningful, sacrificial service to someone in need. And the commandment at the end by Jesus to go and do likewise. Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So someone who is unhappy with the way the inheritance 
of a dead father is going. Rather than doing that, Jesus tells a parable. Told him this parable, the ground of a rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I'll store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And this is the last chapter that I want to talk to you about. Um, and it is these two themes writ large, meaning the themes of the danger of wealth and the necessity of caring for the poor. It begins with what I believe is the most difficult of Jesus's parables. That's called the parable of the shrewd, the shrewd servant, or the shrewd steward. And it goes like this. A very wealthy man learned that his steward was um, not doing his job well and called him to account. He told the steward, the man who's responsible for all of the rich man's possessions in this business, um, I expect from you soon an account of what you're doing because you're, not long, you're no longer going to be able to be my steward here in the near future. The steward said to himself, I know what I'm going to do because I'm too old to dig and I'm too proud to beg. I'm going to go to all of my master's creditors and I'm going to make friends with them so that when I lose this job, I'll be welcomed into their homes. And he did just that. He went to people who owed his master money and he altered those debts. He reduced them significantly. A man who owed uh, 800 gallons of, of oil, he reduced it by 50%. Another creditor to his master who owed wheat, he reduced by 20%. And we're told by Jesus in the parable, the master actually commends this dishonest, selfish, lying servant. Thinks he's wise. And there's a parenthetical thought that the people of the, of the world are more shrewd than the people of light. But the punchline is this. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into heaven. And I could not for many years understand that parable. I couldn't understand why Jesus was holding up this guy who was selfish and shrewd uh, in a bad way, who lied, who was apparently a, a bad manager. Why is this person being held up to us as an example? And I slowly, I think by God's grace, came to understand that the message of this parable is the same as that of the, the parable of the talents, that we are to take the things that God has temporarily entrusted to us as imperfect and unjust as we are. We're to use them in this life, the world now, in such a way as that we can receive eternal rewards in heaven. And um, that sort of thinking is transformative. And I, I, I'm Nearly certain this is the correct understanding of the passage because Jesus then follows with with the comment like if you're going to be faithful with little you'll be faithful with much if you're going to be faithful with the with worldly possessions and wealth that God entrusts to you now on earth you'll be able to get rewards in heaven but if we're not faithful with little we won't be faithful with much according to Luke at this point the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus sneered at him because they loved money Luke says and Jesus reproves them tells them that. They look good in the eyes of people, but God knows their hearts. And the things Jesus says that are that are 
honorable in the sight of men are detestable to God. He then finishes the chapter with what is really probably not a parable, but a story. And it goes like this, and I'll try to get through it quickly. There was a rich man who lived in luxury every day in fine linen and purple. And at his door was placed a beggar named Lazarus, who longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked Lazarus's sores. A day came when Lazarus died and he was carried to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was suffering in Hades. Looking up, this rich man in the flames sees Abraham and Lazarus the beggar and says, Father Abraham, please, I beg you, ask Lazarus to go and dip his finger in water and put a single drop on my tongue because I'm in torment here in these flames. And Abraham says to him, son, in life you had your good things and he had bad and now he and you are receiving your rewards. What's more, there's a chasm, there's a space between the two of us that can't be crossed. So to his credit, the rich man suffering in the flame says, well, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers who are still alive and warn them so that they don't come to this place of torrent, torment. Abraham says an amazing thing. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to those, to them. No, Father Abraham, says the rich man in Hades, looking up. But if someone goes from the dead, rises from the dead and speaks to them, they'll believe. And then the final line of the parable, which I think has a, no small amount of irony and humor. Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Those words came from the mouth of Jesus. So we don't have time to talk about the rich young ruler or the story of Zacchaeus or the widow. But again, 16 out of 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke have these important themes, the dangers of wealth and the necessity for giving to the poor. And so with that, uh, I want to just ask you one question. And before I ask that question and we pray and we're done, I'll tell you that I went back through the Gospel of Luke another time and I looked for references to sexual immorality. And I'll explain that to you why I did that in just a second. And I found some, I found, I think, three, and there were, uh, none of them were in depth. None of them had this sort of uh, profound discussion in the, like the stories that I just shared with you on these other themes, but they were there. So with that background, I want to ask you this question sort of in closing. If in your church, there was a man who was a teacher of Sunday school and seemed to be uh, a, a faithful member of the congregation, but it became clear that he had been taking vacations to Thailand um, to frequent prostitutes on a regular basis. What would happen to that person in your church? And I hope that the answer is um, people would go to him and urge him to repent and that if he was unwilling to do that, he would eventually face church discipline and there would even be the possibility that if he persisted in his uh, unwillingness to repent, that he may even be uh, removed from the church. And that would, I th in my mind, at least would be appropriate. So here's my 
follow-up question to that. What if in your church there was a physician or dentist who made lots and lots of money, did not care for poor people in his practice, and when he gave money away, he gave no money to the poor? What would happen to that person in your church? And it's obviously a rhetorical question, but I think there's a good chance that that person would be put in leadership rather than face any consequences. And that's in, in the face of our commitment to the Bible and its truth, which is sincere and real. And, in, and my question is in response to the reality that there is ample, huge, large amounts of, of uh, teaching in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the entirety of the scriptures that, that warn against that that warn against greed and an unwillingness to share and care about the poor. So in closing, um, I want to urge myself and I want to urge CMDA to fight this uh, deception that we can either be faithful proclaimers of the gospel and the truth of the Bible and call people to repentance, or we can serve the poor that in reality, the, totality of the gospel and the kingdom of God and the message of the Old and the New Testament, the message of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, is that we are to be aggressively pursuing both together. And that in reality, when we do love our neighbors and care for our neighbors and fight for our neighbors who are suffering, and they are suffering, that we are showing the power of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And that will make our message true. Because in my experience now for 30 plus years and my present experience around young people, it looks like they're all looking at their phone in this picture. They're, they're looking at the scriptures on the phone. Like they want to see from us, from the church, both. They want to see a, a commitment to Orthodox biblical faith, and they want to see us meaningfully serving the needs of our, our neighbors. Um, I'm going to close with some prayer, if that's all right, and hand this back over to Bert. Father in heaven, um, you love the poor. We believe the truth uh, in the book of Proverbs that when we give to the poor, we're lending to the Lord and that you will reward us. We believe that you have always been concerned about the poor, that you made ample provision for them in the law, that your prophets spoke over and over again to your people about your concern for the poor, that Jesus, the very character of the Messiah in Psalm 72 and in other places shows that you love the oppressed and the needy and the poor, and that you fight on their behalf, and that you are against the oppressor and for the needy. So we pray that we would walk in that spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a love and a zeal to see the needs of the poor, to seek them out, and to, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to love and serve people for the glory of God and for the kingdom, Jesus, for your, your messianic kingdom. We ask in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.